Simple Beep, episode 84, Apple.com. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And on this episode, we are going to tackle what seems to be a trivial aspect of Apple, namely that they have a website. But as we will see, there's actually a lot of history to unpack there. And of course, Apple's history goes back well before the beginning of the World Wide Web. But before we get to apple.com and other URLs, we have a bit of follow-up. This first item of follow-up goes back all the way to our 24th episode about Easter eggs. Um, We have two items to talk about here. One is to point you, if you have not already seen it, to James Thompson, the developer behind PCalc, uh, his talk at a Hacking with Swift conference about uh, a, a history of Easter eggs, but specifically a bunch of Easter eggs within the Mac OS and uh, a lot of the Finder ones, you know, hold down option so that about the Mac turns into about the Finder and how they were kind of an inspiration for a lot of <laughs> the the Easter eggs, the great Easter eggs in his own software. Uh, so even with that lens on it, it still is a wonderful talk, brilliantly illustrated with uh, static and dynamic examples uh, from Easter eggs in Apple's history and through the overall history of Easter eggs as well. There are lots of bananas. <laughs> there are lots of bananas. And the uh, iguana flag. I think that's my favorite, one of my favorites of all time. Also, a little bit of weird follow-up or follow-out, as it were, Uh, regarding Easter eggs is uh, it's kind of common lore that the very first Easter egg is uh, from the video game Adventure, and James covers this in his talk as well. Um, But since our last episode recorded, uh, I saw this via a retweet from John Syracuse that someone on the uh, selectbutton.net forums thinks they may have found an even older Easter egg than the one from Adventure. Um, this is from a game called Spitfire on a console called the Channel F, which was manufactured by a uh, company called Fairchild. None of this I had heard of before. No, this is way before my video gaming time. I like, kind of glanced over this uh, this article where someone kind of went through the code and, and kind of did a, a dump of all the resources and found, yes, there appears to be an Easter egg in this game, Spitfire that would predate adventure. And so I kind of like glanced through it, looked a lot of it looked too technical for me to read in detail and dropped it into our show notes. And then Ed continued reading (laughs) this thread about this uh, maybe early Easter egg and found uh, an important update. Yeah. So there was a caveat, which was the way that this Easter egg was triggered was by, I guess it was on the game select screen by pressing an extremely arcane, series of buttons on the like keypad or joystick, whatever the input device for this console was. I think it was 48 button presses long and appeared to have no rhyme or reason to it. And like the only way that you would ever figure this out was from reverse engineering the code or unless the developer told you. But then some people tried to verify this and it turned out that while This Easter egg had been written into the code. So if you press these 48 buttons in the sequence on the right screen, it would show the name of the author of the game. That you can do that in emulation, as this person who was hacking through the the byte code uh, or bit code of the um, 
of the game was doing, but on the actual hardware, it's impossible because it basically, the, the simplified version is it doesn't have enough memory to remember the first button press 48 button presses later. <laughs> so even if you enter the code exactly, it has forgotten the beginning of your string of inputs and it's physically impossible. <laughs> but the emulator version doesn't have that like RAM limitation. And so it's able to execute this code. So I guess then the the finisher on this little story is that while it may be the case that this was the earliest written Easter egg, I think that Adventure still wins the title for earliest performable Easter egg because this one couldn't happen until maybe decades later with emulation. <laughs> I see the next thing in the in the follow-up here. We have more ProDOS follow-up. Um, so this is from Chris Hansen on Twitter, who wrote us very kindly to tell us all of the things that we got wrong about ProDOS. Again, um, just so that I don't get even more wrong about ProDOS, we're going to link to Chris's tweets in the show notes, and I am going to say ProDOS is an operating system that was created by Apple. It has Pro in the title, the end. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, our previous episode was about uh, Mac mods, and we just found a couple since we recorded that we would also like to link you to. We'll put links in our show notes and uh, just briefly describe them here. Uh, first, we talked a little bit about uh, like patio furniture or interior corporate office furniture made from defunct cheese grater Power Mac G5s or Mac Pro cases. There's one more example where it seems like a, a, a teacher at a school kind of made his own standing desk from a collection of Power Mac G5 cases. Uh, so if you're not really ready to drop however much money it is to have a professional interior design firm build these for you, just know that the DIY approach appears to work as well. Just from the education context there, I have a feeling that the conversation went something along the lines of, we're retiring all these machines, they're going to the landfill. And the teacher said, what if they don't go to the landfill? <laughs> and the administrator said, I don't care what you do with them. <laughs> we also talked about um, the kind of the interplay between Mac minis and the Power Mac G4 Cube because they were both tiny, small computers. But we missed one uh, mod involving the small computers that we must include in our list of Mac mods. And it is taking the G4 cube and turning it into a very, very tiny cheese grater, complete with handles on the top and the bottom and uh, the, the perforated metal cheese grater appearance, but otherwise condensed to the size of a Power Mac G4 cube around the cube core, none of the floating acrylic. And finally, a peripheral mod which is actually pretty cool, uh, where this was posted on the Vintage Apple subreddit, where someone has taken the case for a defunct Disk 2 five and a quarter inch Apple floppy drive that would have gone with an Apple II. And of course, it has this you know nice wide slot on the front to accommodate those big floppy disks uh, and a rather large enclosure. Certainly big enough to fit inside a uh, a DVD 
reader and writer. Um, and you just pop the disc right in the slot. They have a, a beautiful picture of the Snow Leopard install DVD going into what looks like a floppy drive, which made a lot of people in the comments cringe, thinking that, like, oh, no, you're going to destroy everything. Well, no, everything has already been pre-destroyed and then put back together again. And there's, like, a bonus also in SSD in this uh, enclosure as well. So it's it's a optical drive as well as some external storage all in one. Uh, one last thing that's not related to any of our previous episodes, but that I wanted to mention in the time since our last episode, uh, this has gone live. I am part of a online trivia league called Learned League. And one of the things that members can do is they can apply to write themed quizzes, trivia quizzes on different subjects. And so I did one on Apple history that I thought would be of interest to our listeners, perhaps uh, perhaps easy for those of you who have listened to all of our episodes and internalized many of the stories about Apple's history. It's a 12-question quiz, and now that it has, uh, has passed, uh, it was a one-day event. Now that that has passed, everything on the Learned League site after it's done is uh, available to the public. So I'll put the link in there. You can go test your Apple history knowledge. It's been a real delight for me uh, in our Simple Beep Slack to watch you kind of pull in behind the scenes stuff. Like uh, as the quizzes creator, you're also able to set answers that are definitely not acceptable. <laughs> um, so I don't want to give away any spoilers, but in some cases where you may think that there's like a proper name versus a generic name or uh, things that you may think are a synonym are definitely not a synonym. I really like seeing the uh, the answers that come in that um, <laughs> are definitely incorrect have to be explicitly marked as do not accept. <laughs> yeah. And there was one where I had to change it after the fact or while the, while the quiz was live um, because people had, uh, I think, just guessed an answer that was technically correct. Yeah, definitely check out this quiz. It's a lot of fun. And Learned League is a lot of fun. It is uh, by invitation only. Uh, so you have to find someone you know who can vouch for your character. But there are many such people. Uh, and then you get to uh, play awesome trivia. To borrow from the ATP guys, don't email Ed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on to our main topic of this episode, the history of Apple's website at apple.com. And the reason we're making it the focus of this particular episode is because uh, the website versionmuseum.com came to our awareness since we last recorded. And I know a bunch of people in the Apple community and the general tech community linked to it, including John Gruber of Daring Fireball, which is where I think both Ed and I saw it. Um, because it's a really well put together gallery of popular websites through the ages. Obviously, anyone can do this on their own if they go to the Internet Archive. Um, but I think this benefits from some like it's it's screenshots put together. And uh, I think in cases where the majority of the content may be missing because it wasn't cached by the Internet Archive. They don't show that to you. They only show you like clean representative images from time periods. And I think in certain occasions, they have sources outside of the Internet Archive. So it's a little more complete than what you could get by doing it on your own. And another thing I like about this is uh, it's it's run by a father and son team who are, I think, are choosing to remain anonymous. So it's not something they're doing for clicks because... Uh, in doing some like casual initial research for this episode and you just, you know, kind of Google for history of apple.com or, or things related to that, a bunch of those just like clickbait sites like 
Business Insider, who I'm happy to shame for this, have put together their own galleries that are very clearly screenshots from the Internet Archive that you have to click through one at a time and get a fresh ad hit on everyone. I didn't know if you were going to call Business Insider a clickbait site, but that was definitely the one I was thinking of. (laughs) Yeah, there are more, but that's the one that I I choose to uh, share my disdain. Um, So yeah, versionmuseum.com. It's not just the history of Apple.com. There are a bunch of other good tech websites uh, tracked there. So uh, give it a look. And they also have screenshots of some apps and other things. So they have uh, a pretty good screenshot library of classic macOS and macOS 10, and then also a really nice page on iTunes. Um, I mean, it took us, what, two episodes to get through the entire history of iTunes? Uh, and you can go to that page and watch its, you know, slow descent into madness over the course of uh, 25 screenshots or something. If you instead want to hear my personal slow descent into madness, specifically just about an app icon, listen to those two episodes. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I think on versionmuseum.com and uh, generally through Internet Archive or other means, uh, the farthest back we can go, because it really is almost as far back as the World Wide Web goes, is 1994. Yeah, so this the, the first couple of screenshots that we have over on, on Version Museum are pre-Internet Archive. And then from the ones beyond there, I always tried to go and find uh, the actual corresponding entry in the Internet Archive myself and browse around and see if there was anything else interesting rather than just uh, crib off of their their excellent gallery. Uh, but the first couple are before the Internet Archive started uh, started capturing pages in 1996, which was extremely prescient of them. Yes. But the very first one is it only comes from this single source, um, which is uh, from Kevin Fox, his website, kfury.com. And it's literally like, I took a screenshot of the Apple website once, and I never threw away any of my screenshots. And I'm pretty sure that this is a real screenshot of apple.com circa sometime. Um, he originally pegged it at about 1992. Uh, he's revised his estimate and thinks that it's somewhere between there and 1994. But nobody really knows. Um, I honestly hope that this is real because it's delightful. So the homepage is a, you know, it's a single large graphic, effectively, with a very large rainbow Apple logo on the left, and then like corresponding paint smears in the six colors on the right, which has Apple Computer Inc as the first one in the green, and then the five different areas of the website that you can go to. Software online, tech info library, Apple web pages, as if you weren't already on one, your feedback, and finally, Smorgasbord. Ah, the 90s. I tried so desperately to find out what Smorgasbord was, and there's there's just nothing. It's gone. It's lost to history. Um, but someone who was in charge of webmastering at Apple in the very early days of the web decided that that was, I guess, the, the title that they gave to everything else that they were going to put on their website. Um, but there's really no way to get at what that might have been unless, of course, someone who was actually involved in this, um, or 
you know, there's a hard drive laying around in, in infinite loop somewhere <laughs> uh, that actually has some of this data. But uh, as far as being accessible on the public web, it is no more. This design is, you know, it really takes you back to the very early days of the web uh, and to the technology that was being used. I mean, this isn't, this is clearly an image map, right? Uh, remember when every, every single page on the internet, they said, ah, the, your internet connection is fast enough that we feel confident giving you a large image. And then you will click on various parts of it. Um, also, of course, the, there is extreme dithering in this image. Everything has to be in the web safe color palette. And, uh, the colors of the Apple logo are not. And they were not about to compromise on those. Um, I think some of the like texturing in the uh, areas outside of the Apple logo is deliberate to mask some of that effect. Uh, but in the logo itself, it's pretty apparent uh, just how through the ringer the, uh, the original image file has been put there to wind up on the web. This image is very much uh, of, of its time in the 90s. But Ed, you found this absolutely hilarious like what if this very specific image from this very specific time was was modernized to look like it was made today yeah so one of the things that you know we're starting at the beginning and of course we'll move towards the uh the great flattening of apple design as we move through the timeline but someone took this original design and uh then took it to its hilarious conclusion this is uh someone posted it on um, on Reddit in the in the subreddit called unsolicited redesigns, which is perfect. Also, its final uh final vote total on Reddit was zero, <laughs> but they took it and they made it a completely flat Apple logo. Did like the Illustrator uh trace outlines on all of the text, and then um took the like black beveled Garamond and made it basically like white San Francisco or maybe Helvetica Noia. <laughs> Let's move on uh, from from this earliest version of Apple.com that we can find to a version that uh, versionmuseum.com pegs as from 1996. And uh, this, again, is very image and media heavy. But instead of having a kind of paper texture background, it's uh, it's kind of the, maybe the first instance of some brushed metal. I called it dithered metal. It's like there's not enough colors to be brushed. Because we're still in this like GIF color, you know, not uh, not adaptive GIF color palette. It's laid out like what everyone in the 90s thought the 2000s would eventually look like. Like a futuristic dashboard, kind of. There's a main content area where I guess uh, when you clicked on a button, maybe it was a, a frame set like HTML often was in that day. Uh, that is extended by some nicely textured dithered metal to the Apple logo as like a separate piece of this dashboard interface. Um, and then uh, kind of recessed in between them is the site title, Apple computer homepage and a list of uh, very skeuomorphic buttons, but like 1996 multimedia buttons in a uh, like Mac OS blue, like one of the, the shades of the Mac OS face, the darker shade of blue for the website sections about Apple products and support, developer services, technology and research, special communities, and outside resources. Yeah, and just looking at this, again, we have no way of examining 
the code or anything behind this because all we have is an image. But it strikes me that the web technology that they've embraced in the intervening couple of years is they've gone from it being one giant image map to this is definitely a table layout where uh, it's all a table and they've sliced it up and it's all zero uh, zero margin, zero border between the tables. And then there's like 27 different images here that have been precisely aligned to actually create what we have. My favorite thing about this design, though, is at the very bottom um, where the web is so new that Apple feels like they have to give you instructions on how to use it because it says, click on any section above to go directly to that page. <laughs> but I'm looking at this interface, and it also really reminds me a lot of when QuickTime went metal, which I think is in QuickTime 4, which came out a few years later. So this almost like is a preview of that, where it has that media frame that has uh, that curved edge at the bottom, like they did with the controls in QuickTime. And uh, because this is a capture from 1996, one of the like pieces of actual content in the main frame table cell is Macintosh versus Windows 95. Why Macintosh computers are better than PCs running Windows 95. You know, I, I do hope that this is real because it seems like if you had mocked it up as just like, imagine what Apple's website would look like a year before our first Internet Archive capture of it. This could easily be it. <laughs> yep. Uh, so then one more year, 1997, we do get into the Wayback Machine era of Apple.com, and it kind of settles down a little bit. Uh, there's begun to be a more standardized view of what a corporate website should look like, what kind of information you're disseminating on it, and what a homepage should contain. And of course, we, we talked about low bandwidth. One of the things that a homepage should contain is lots of information so that you can go to a single page, load it once, and see lots of, uh, lots of new information about the company that you're, uh, company whose site you're at, which in this case is Apple. Um, but the design is a little bit more settled down. It has, uh, like a red navigation rail down the left hand side that, that nav rail is still an image map. Has to be because those fonts have shadows, and uh, we're a long way from CSS shadows in 1997. <laughs> um, and one of the things that is immediately noticeable when you're viewing this in on a modern machine in a modern web browser is that you have the interface at the top for uh, for the Internet Archive, which is spanning your browser window, and then the actual site itself is wedged over to the left. It's extremely narrow. You think, why, why did they make this design choice? There's all this white space here. But of course, what Apple was doing was designing their website for their own products that could potentially load this website. And to, to do that, they had to design to a 640 pixel width. And so the actual content of the page is, you know, in the I guess like probably 620, 610 range because you have to account a little bit for scroll bars and, and window controls and those sorts of things. Um, they're not down into the, um, the 512 range. I think they figure if you have a 512 pixel screen, um, you can scroll to the right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at, in 1997. But they also recognized that for a large number of Macs at that time, 640 by 480 was still an extremely standard resolution. Mo many people were trying to get up to 800 by 600, but uh, it just wasn't there yet. 
One of the other nice things about this being uh, a web page that you can actually somewhat interact with is you can scroll all the way down, see all of the different entries, and see what kind of like information text they put in the footer of the site. And my favorite part is that uh, there's a little notice at the bottom that says that the page is, quote, maintained online by webmaster at apple.com. <laughs> All right, before we move on to the next major iteration of Apple.com, which I think for me is like when I think of old Apple.com, it was always this style and this uh, hierarchy. Um, I want to take a quick interlude because this time period may also coincide with when more people started to come to the Mac because more people are coming online. Uh, the late nineties, uh, has a lot of things happening for Apple. There's Steve jobs return through the next acquisition, the iMac, the refocusing of the company, et cetera, et cetera. But there was another thing completely separate from anything having to do with Apple, the computer company that drove a lot of people, a record number of people to apple.com in the late nineties. This is because there was kind of no reason to go to apple.com before this. And it was the trailer for Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, which didn't kick off the tradition of Apple hosting a whole bunch of movie trailers, but it's certainly the first one they hosted that got any kind of mainstream attention. And uh, there is a great thread from Apple employee Chad Little, who I think still works at Facebook, but definitely it was also an early employee at Facebook. Um, on Quora.com, that's kind of a, a mini oral history of how did the, the Phantom Menace trailer, which, you know, is 20 plus years of pent up demand for a new Star Wars movie and everyone's going nuts for it. How did that come to be at Apple.com slash trailers? And basically his story is like the very first online copy just looked terrible. <laughs> and uh, the people at Apple kind of uh, checked it out at Lucasfilm's website where they were hosting it and um, basically just kind of like did a who is lookup or something and was like, hey, Lucasfilm online team, since you don't provide webmaster at Lucasfilm (laughs) in your website footer, uh, you want us to do it? We have this thing called QuickTime. We can get a proper encoding and we can, you know, we're a big company. We can serve it from our place. And they worked it out. And so by the time that the second major trailer was uh, released in March of 1999. Uh, It went live, a QuickTime version of it went live on Apple's trailers website. And according to a separate article, it was so popular that uh, we'll put views of the trailer aside because it was in the millions. On the very first day, QuickTime itself was downloaded over half a million times. So people could watch the Star Wars trailer who didn't already have QuickTime. That's incredible. Another fun thing that came out of this is uh, as as this many people are coming to Apple.com and uh, requesting a very large resource, um, obviously, like that's that's a lot of bandwidth to serve. And this is pretty much the beginning of Apple's partnership with Akamai, who does their uh, caching and hosting and I think continues to this day. And Akamai has turned into its own uh, very successful, reputable company for serving content on the on the internet yeah it's so funny that this little little deal that they struck because apple had the quicktime technology led to i don't know like you could plausibly say tvos right because this led them to doing trailers 
And then they had the very successful trailers.apple.com site. And then on the first Apple TV, or I guess the second generation, uh, there was the trailers app, which was the thing that nobody wanted. So that was like the backdoor that you could rewrite to use as some other like media server app, which basically meant that people wanted additional functionality on their Apple TVs. And here we are. <laughs> we have tvOS. All from the uh, the Phantom Menace, which I think every article I found when I was looking for this was like, if only the movie ended up being as good as the trailer or as like beloved as the trailer. Yeah, well, it was a great disappointment. <laughs> but getting back to the larger overall Apple.com of 1998, or how I put in uh, our show notes, the iMac era. Again, this is the the design that I remember like going in our, in our computer lab at, at Shaker Middle School and just refreshing to see if there's anything new. Uh, it's got a giant Apple corporate logo in uh, Apple Garamond and then a hero shot, like a, a full width, um, whatever they're trying to promote the most. And then uh, below that, an animated GIF news ticker for their hot news. And then three at the beginning and then later four, uh, like, less important or less timely relevant product shots before getting to the, like the kind of the footer, the rest of the links to the store or to software downloads. Um, And so the, one of the examples they have on version museum is something we've brought up on this show before when uh, the iMac is out and um, there are kind of three ways to get your G3 processor. The iMac is occupying the hero space at the top. And then the three, Sub uh, product category spotlights below are Pro, Go, Woe. The Pro are the desktop beige G3 towers. The Go is the PowerBook G3. And uh, the Woe is, again, the iMac. I have distinct memories of this era of the website, especially the hot news ticker. Um, I don't know who, who seized upon that phrase, but it lasted for a long time. And I remembered what it looked like. But then I saw in our outline for the show that you had written that it was an animated gif and i went that can't possibly be right i mean it was text why would you encode that as an animated gif that's absurd except it's not it was like the only way that they could actually make a ticker style image that would fit in that place and i thought you know my immediate thought was well no, clearly that was some sort of like text transformation, JavaScript. No, none of that existed or it did, but they couldn't count on like robust support for that. You could count on an animated GIF working in every browser. And as everyone, including webmaster at apple.com knows, you never use the HTML marquee tag. No. Oh, no, no, no. That, that, that would be uh, amateurish. Yes. So launching right around the same time, uh, this is one of those places where it's kind of fun to go in the Internet Archive and page back and forth kind of month by month, although it does take a very long time um, to load up all of those uh, different snapshots. But right around this time where the site design changed, a couple months into it, I think, is when down below those little feature images, a very unassuming little uh little image, just a little text uh, on the GIF says Apple Store Online. And this was the first launch of Apple selling hardware via the internet. And I mean, I think 
we take that for granted now. Um, you know, in one respect, we could probably do an entire, could have done an entire episode on the Apple Store online and you know the the sticky notes and the drama of taking it down and putting it back up and all of the things and how they were how they were launched there um but this was a this started as something rather unassuming but then of course came to be one of the primary functions of why you might go to apple.com is to shop for products and then eventually purchase them and i like how you've uh kind of put this in our notes like at the beginning it was designed very much like a cleaned up paper catalog and you put here like mac mall yeah it's like mac mall without you know without the weird lady in the corner and without any of the like starbursts and crazy typography that's trying to entice you to buy products but it 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 does have the same sort of characteristics of paper catalog where every every entry on the front page of the store it doesn't just it's not just an image. It doesn't just say the product name. It has some explanatory text about why you would be interested in that product, some marketing copy that, again, you know, every click, every navigation to a new page, if you don't have broadband yet, is uh, is time-consuming. And so you want to convince people, oh, you want to look more into what the iMac does and what, what it's good for. One of the funny things, on the very first capture of the Apple Store on the Wayback Machine, there's an area at the bottom that's supposed to be about the G4 Cube, but it has a picture of the G4 Tower, and also, somehow, Laura Mipsum text got encoded into that image and is preserved in amber forever. <laughs> Ooh, speaking of amber, uh, there's another bullet point on here that's worth mentioning, that uh, a lot of the clickable elements of this store are styled in these kind of translucent colorful lozenges not just the like the buy now or the buy me buttons but also the navigation the top nav bar is kind of a like a segment well we'll get to segmented controls but it's a kind of a translucent aqua e type uh interface but um in a nice apple only apple would do this touch uh each button corresponding to the four major products is colored the same as that project product. So the the iMac is a tangerine one. There's a tangerine button. The iBook is blueberry. There's a blueberry button. The G4 Tower is it's uh, the first incarnation. So it's a graphite button. And then the PowerBook G3 must have been the uh, like the Lombard with the bronze keyboard because there's a very subtle bronze little aqua bubble for buy this PowerBook. Yeah, I love that. This is like. It's like the early proving ground. It's like beta version of Aqua itself is going on right here. Because in in the sidebar on this very first capture, it's there's a little ad for Mac OS 9 uh, in pre-release. It says, get ready, your internet copilot is almost here. Reserve your copy now. But it does make you think that the Mac OS 9 logo was that tangerine orange uh kind of aqua-like nine, uh, which then was replaced it with macOS 10 with the blue aqua uh, translucent X. So yeah, this is like, obviously the hardware is already kind of aqua-y with the the pinstripes um, in the, the non-colored version portion of the IMAX and, you know, obviously the, the fruit flavors itself. But yeah, as far as software design, 
OS 9 isn't even here. We're still very much in like platinum and charcoal of the, the classic Mac OS. Definitely. One of the other things that is, uh, I suppose, is one of the reasons that the online store launched around this time is the underlying technology that it ran on, which, of course, came from Next. It's web objects. So here we go. <laughs> what is web objects? So like virtually everything that Next did in software, it had to be, it had to be object-oriented. So web objects is an object-oriented Java framework that is primarily useful for deploying web apps, although the apps could be, like many of the Next technologies were kind of platform agnostic and could be deployed in other ways. But the number one way that it was used uh, at Apple and sort of by virtue of that, the number one way it was used anywhere, uh, other people were using web objects, but as we'll see, Apple used it in volume the most because they had some huge successes that ran off of web objects. So this was what underpinned the, the store um, and also then later became the foundation of the iTunes store, which is the thing I was just alluding to that was extremely successful. Millions and billions of transactions running through web objects in the, in the peak of the iPod era and the iTunes store. Um, and I believe, because it still exists, you can still buy a single for 99 cents from Apple. I believe that's still web objects, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think so in the iTunes store. I think that some of the other things like the app store might have migrated off of it. So this technology was uh, really ramping up as the Apple store launched, and then it ramped down, except in these legacy uses that Apple has. Although there were some people who were still huge proponents uh, into the later portion of the 2000s decade. So uh, there was, in fact a community-run developer conference for it that was hilariously called W-O-W-O-D-C. <laughs> so if you thought that dub-dub was too funny, how about wawad? <laughs> <laughs> it was a little bit confusing. At first, this seemed like this was actually an Apple event, like the, like, what was it, like the QuickTime conference that they had once. Uh, upon further investigation, it was not. It was a community conference, kind of like the events that run around WWDC now that it's so popular that you can't get a ticket, things like AltCon for layers. And this one was specifically focused on web objects. It does sound like uh, a number of Apple engineers did participate or give talks or uh, attend the conference when it was still, uh, when it was still going strong. And man, web objects is weird. Um, all of these other technologies sprung up around it for uh, creating things and deploying things with web objects. And so this conference has topics like using third-party frameworks such as Project Wonder, Huda Frameworks, Wirehose, and Lewo stuff. <laughs> As for the Apple Store itself and how this impacted things, one of the things about web objects is that it manifests itself very clearly in the URLs that you go to. So if you were using the Apple Store online at this time, you heard of web objects just by virtue of the fact that it ran past your eyeballs at some point. Uh, in fact, the original store.apple.com, if you went to that URL, it didn't just stay there or it didn't just redirect you to like slash US if you were in the US. 
which is kind of more the behavior that it uh, had later on. But it redirected you to store.apple.com slash 1-800-MY-APPLE slash web objects slash Apple Store. <laughs> and so this was a weird, interesting bit of branding that I thought was important to mention in the context of this topic, which is Apple having a website, is the fact that so much of what Apple did before they could lean on web technologies was phone-based. So, I mean, I remember uh, at least inquiring, if not purchasing Macs through that phone number. Um, and I remember calling, uh, was it 1-800-SOS-APPLE for support? Yeah, APPL. Yeah, APPL. Yeah, you know, the E runs off the end. Um, and so what they did here was... I think actually one of the more clever ways that companies did this around this, you know, dot com boom time. Um, Apple was an old web or, you know, they were an old technology company. They had all these Unix people coming over from Next who were like not afraid of a subdomain, right? (laughs) And, you know, knew what the restrictions were. They wanted that portion of the URL to be there because it would catch people's attention and they would recognize it as a 1-800 number that they could call if they were uncomfortable with continuing their uh, transaction online. But it's like, it's capitalized, it's properly punctuated with the hyphens, and that could only happen in that second portion after the slash. Because I remember at this time, there were other companies that had lots of phone-based business that were then transitioning to online presences. And the one that I remember here in the U.S. is you would see ads for them on TV was 1-800-Flowers, where, you know, you would buy floral arrangements for people. You could call a number, give them your credit card, they would mail it to the person, you know, um, for a birthday or some other uh, holiday or celebration or condolence or whatever. Um, Great, huge business. They decided to go online they decided to register a domain name like everybody was in the dot-com boom. They were told, well, there are no hyphens in domain names. And they said, great, we'll take 1800flowers.com. <laughs> I mean, because it was the name of their business, but it was almost like it never occurred to them to like just register flowers.com instead. Or you know, if it had been sniped to pay for it because that was actually their business. And it led to all these ridiculous URLs. Where here, this URL is ridiculous for its length, but nothing in it, like everything in it is sensical. Um, you know, it's the store subdomain at apple.com. They wanted this marketing piece of their phone number being in there. Then, well, everything's running on web objects, so it has to be in a web object subdirectory or it's just not going to run properly. And then the like index of page of the store is called Apple Store. <laughs> And like you said, there was a redirect put in, so you didn't have to tell consumers, go to store.apple.com slash 1-800. No, 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 no. Yeah. (laughs) But that is where you landed eventually, and that's what you'll see on the the Internet Archive page. And it also means, so then, the way that the the literal objects in web objects were constructed was there must have been some sort of hierarchy, like a taxonomical hierarchy that you established and maybe gave names to, but the way that then things were navigated on the website is that you would just get this portion of the address that was a number hierarchy. So you would get like 
1.14.0.0.3.1, dot something like that. And then that would correspond to the iMac product page. But if you click the buy me button, zero part of the way through that string would turn to one because it was like they were related at that level of the, of the structure. Um, this is compute completely not human readable. And also because of the way that then web objects served those pages, they were not crawlable. So pretty much everything past the front page of the store is not archived until almost 10 years later, uh, in 2000, at the end of 2008, they moved to a system that I think was still backed on web, uh, on web objects, but implemented more human readable URLs. And then those could also be archived. So like I was able to get basically all the way through the steps of like engraving an iPod Nano and choosing its color uh, before you got to some point where it actually needed to do like a dynamic form feedback where it couldn't then just send you the next page in the uh, like checkout system. So later on, much, much more of the Apple Store is, is available online. That era is about seven years long, though, because in fall of 2015, <laughs> Apple decided to shut down having a separate store website. I think this was, in part, the move away from web objects. Um, so now all of the Apple online purchasing infrastructure is on something else. I don't know what kind of stack it's on currently. But then that also unified it with things like the Apple Store app on iOS, uh, which they did not want to run on web objects. Um, but it also means that there's no store where you can go and see all the things that they sell. So, um, good luck finding AirPods. I don't know. <laughs> we'll get more to like what the navigation bar contains today and how it's changed going back through history. But now you've basically got a, a kind of standard online shopping interface where you've got uh, something representing your shopping cart, or in this case, a shopping bag in the top nav that follows you around from page to page, whether it's product marketing pages or QuickTime trailers pages or the the deep support knowledge base, uh, you've always got your Apple.com shopping bag there with you now. Yeah, but if you're not looking for like a mainline product, if you're looking for an accessory or something, there's no reliable search. There's no place where you can say, Apple, show me all the things that you're willing to sell me. Like, do you have a six-foot cable with these with these ends on them, I don't even know. You have to go to like a generic accessories page and just start scrolling. <laughs> it's not a good interface. So speaking of that top navigation bar, uh, we'll get into the next kind of design era of Apple.com, where maybe the home page stays largely the same with a, a main hero shot, a hot news ticker, and a couple secondary spotlighted product shots. But at Macworld SF 2000, the January Macworld Expo, you know, it's it's a it's the start of the year. Apple's known for having a big keynote announcing new and revolutionary products. This is the year 2000. This is the first keynote of the new millennium. What was the big release that year? A new apple.com. <laughs> Truly Apple's own Hot News article, which is now just Apple Newsroom, Apple PR. Uh, the headline is Apple Unveils Internet Strategy. So, of course, there were new Apple.com features that also made their way into the macOS that were uh, unveiled and trumpeted at Macworld SF in the year 2000. 
So part of this is this new Aqua interface for um, primary tabs at the top of your screen that also had secondary content areas based on which uh, current tab was selected. And these primary tabs that uh, kind of designated the main navigation areas of Apple.com in the year 2000 were the Apple logo, store, iReview, like lowercase i, uppercase r, iTools, iCards, QuickTime, and support. And the thing that I always remember is, obviously, by default, you go to Apple.com, you're in the Apple logo tab. But the things that, you know, like a big product enthusiast like myself was going to Apple.com for was in a the, the secondary tab bar beneath the tab. So if Apple the Apple tab is selected, you have to go beneath that to a sub tab for hardware, a sub tab for software, and so on and so on and so on. Another thing worth mentioning is that like they had a full like secondary navigation for QuickTime. Sure, you had to have a place to download QuickTime, uh, a place about QuickTime authoring. But also, if you went to the primary QuickTime tab uh, during this era of Apple.com, one of the secondary options was trailers, as, as we talked about before. But obviously, like the, the new stuff at Apple.com, you, you don't do a keynote just about the design of a website. It was all these new features that were primarily available at Apple's website. And the majority of them fell under this iTools umbrella. Um, Ed, Ed has a great article here. Steve Jobs micromanaged the skeuomorphic design because this is pretty much a sweet spot of that before we get into little original iPhone-sized skeuomorphic designs. Yeah, I absolutely love this. So this is from Fortune magazine in 2000, where they actually, I guess, got some inside access to Apple to see what was going on as they were as they were creating this brand new website. And he's literally talking to the designers who are described as, quote, weary looking. <laughs> and here's a direct quote in the article. The icon for real estate doesn't do anything for me at all. That's not what a for sale sign looks like. And I don't much like this investing icon either. I can't tell if it's supposed to look like a dollar bill or a stock certificate, but this old-fashioned highway sign for cars? Now that's cool. I love it. You instantly know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. I feel like in, we've laid so much of uh, iOS 1 through 6 skeuomorphism at the feet of Scott Forstall. <laughs> but like, um, you know, putting like, hey, we're going 64-bit icon on a giant U.S. interstate sign. That's that's so Steve Jobs. <laughs> so what are some of these iTools with their uh, overly skeuomorphic designs? Well, I, I see a, a postmark on one of them. <laughs> As it ends up on two of them. Um, you may be familiar with the postmark element from uh, Mail.app, I think in the, the early releases of Mac space OS space 10 stylized as X. Um, I don't think it's there anymore. It's just, Oh, it sure is. (laughs) Well, uh, I think this is where it started. Um, Part of iTools was Apple providing you with an email account that gave you an email address at, uh, I think at Mac.com, which is, you know, sign of another sign of things to come. Um, But there were also iCards, which were online greeting cards that had Apple's design sensibility baked right in, including again, uh, this 
bitmap of a postmark sent from Cupertino, California that went over where the stamp would be if you sent a physical postcard through the mail. Yep. Just to curtail any potential follow-up, I'm now looking at these side-by-side on my screen in the uh, quick look preview for Mail.app in Mojave and the graphic on the Wayback Machine in 2000. They both have the same design, the same circles, and they both say, hello from California, with an Apple logo in the middle. So this has endured almost 20 years. <laughs> yes, yes. I just threw this into uh, our show notes. Um, I, don't, I don't think I ever sent a single iCard. And I know that it lasted into the years of iOS because there was a dedicated iOS app for, I think, maybe just cards at that point. Um, but I knew that like every once in a while, if you want, really wanted to like impress some, one of your online friends, you would send them one of these e-cards. But back then it was like Blue Mountain, I think, was the big provider. And I think Blue Mountain still exists to send e-cards around the internet as if this is a thing that needs to happen. I don't know. Um, of course, Apple provided a whole bunch of photographs that you could use to be the basis for your card. And a lot of these strike me as like uh, the kind of the default set of photorealistic user icons you can set in Mac OS and, or OS 10. Um, like there's the, the image that shows up on a lot of these cached captures of iCards is of uh, candles. So you send someone an iCard on their birthday, but um, I've also seen some with like outdoor activities or pets and they're all just kind of like the same style of stock photography that Apple likes to use in their, uh, in their digital services. There's a really cool gallery from, I guess, former uh, Apple designer Michael Darius at his Dribble profile that's specifically of the work he did for uh, iTools, which later turned into .Mac, which later turned into MobileMe, which later turned into iCloud. But it, it includes things like um, the iCards interface, the uh, the iDisk interface, which was a whopping 20 megabytes of storage that you could use in the way that we use uh, Dropbox and other services today. iCloud Drive, it's the direct successor. And I guess today we can use the same mocking tone to be a whopping five gigabytes of storage on iCloud Drive. Um, but uh, getting back to Michael's gallery, it's really interesting because it includes some of his work that eventually shipped to be the the web interface to these iTools, like how you check your .Mac email or your .me email. But there are also some things like what if there was a native Mac app in the Mac OS X era for creating your iCards or at the top of uh, this one gallery, just kind of like a general community app where it's got a list of contacts down the left side, a live look at your eyesight camera so you can know how you're presenting yourself to the world for any potential video chats that pop up and things from the early 2000s, like kind of a, a live journal style blog or a Zanga style blog um, where you can also share your like what what your iTunes is currently playing, which we all know is like Audio Scrobbler and Last.fm. There are a lot of cool concepts in here. Obviously, not all of them made it to the final shipping version of iTools and the things that followed. Uh, but nonetheless, it's it's another good gallery of stuff to look through from this era. Apple always flirting with creating a decent social network. That's right. Never actually quite getting there. There are two other components from this uh, giant Apple.com redesign. Um, one is KidSafe, which is kind of like a, a net nanny. Um, 
like if if activate kids safe set it up and then your children will only go to pre-approved websites and i think that is how it was designed to work it wasn't that it was blocking websites known to be bad but rather the opposite only letting you go to websites that were pre-approved to be good and apple was i think shouldering the burden of maintaining that database on their own i don't think kids safe lasted for very long so it was a it was a whitelist type of service right yeah as opposed to a blocker of some sort right and uh and also iReview which remember this is the year 2000 so Yelp doesn't exist yet and uh one of the <laughs> wrap ups or uh, of of the Macworld Expo I think it is at the uh yeah at the Mac Observer they make a point to point out that iReview is not just reviews of things in the the tech industry or of uh websites it's it's a comprehensive review service where users can add comments to reviews and it's you know getting into this era of uh user generated content that reviews things on the internet i recently heard the npr podcast how i built this about yelp and there was like much consternation about their eventually revolutionary decision to let users review <laughs> and it's like well apple was kind of sitting on something that might have turned into its own publicly traded business but uh as with many things from this era, it just never really caught on. Yeah, it kind of made me think of a weird alternate alternate timeline that we could be in if Apple had really locked down all these things and made them into successful products in the era between like 2000 and 2007 and then launched the iPhone. And they're like, we have perfect, we have the best uh, products and services for all of these different needs. Like... We could not have an app store if that had been the case. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm going to go quickly here, I think. Uh, moving on to 2003, another slight refresh to what is considered top-level importance at Apple. Um, they added a tab for Switch, for getting people uh, to switch from Windows to the Mac. Um, the iTools evolved into .Mac. And it uh, looks like pretty much most of the other tabs stayed the same. They also added a, a, a tab for macOS 10. Which, again, is interesting because uh, in this hierarchy, there's still the, the leftmost tab is the Apple logo, and its subtab is hardware and software. But I guess at this point in 2003, we're starting to get into iLife applications and some pro-level applications. So there is still a need for software, where I think before... It, that tab was dominated by the actual operating system software. The next year in 2004, the dedicated top-level tab for the Switch campaign was switched out for a combination iPod plus iTunes tab. And this is obviously as the uh, the iTunes music store is taking off in a very big way. Right, and iTunes on Windows taking off as well and leading to great success there. Um. I noted here that there was almost a move to even bigger hero images that pushed the other promo areas further down the page. Uh, there's one that I kept running into with a really annoying, screaming purple face of Bono. Oh, God. Uh, just one more time that Apple has uh, has put you two in your face. <laughs> they love to do that. The top-level navigation and overall design stayed pretty consistent until 2007 when the iPhone was launched. And so an eighth 
top level tab is added, obviously, for the iPhone. Right. This was the first time that they actually added another tab that they had been running on seven. And it was like, you have to, uh, you have to, if you want to bring in a new one, you have to send another one away. But the iPhone was special. And Ed, you put in a, a good note here. Also, this is with the launch of the iPhone. This was the first time that the Apple.com homepage was a black background instead of all white. Um, and it's because it's got that beautiful first, like, truly hero shot of the iPhone where the swipe to unlock wallpaper screen was the, uh, the, like the two clownfish in the green anemone. Right. And I feel like now it's kind of a 50, 50 chance, whether you wind up with a predominantly light or dark background on apple.com. So like, as we're recording this right now, uh, the product that they're promoting at the top is Apple card, which is, uh, infamously white. Yes. Um, and they decided to go all light with that. And then that also affected the things further down the page. Um, the iPhone 10 R and 10 S promos, which I think that if you, you hop, take a very short hop in the way back machine to like three weeks ago, which you can do, they, they, they check the page every day. Um, those promos for the iPhones were on black backgrounds. So it just sort of comes and goes based on what, uh, they like as the aesthetic for whatever's in top placement. But all of those changes were kind of immediately after the January 2007 announcement of the iPhone. There were six long months then where um, this is a particularly fun place to page through month by month on the Internet Archive because the iPhone then moves down into one of those uh, into one of those featured images and they just go on like, yeah, we got other products. Uh, we've we've got more important products because they're already released. <laughs> and they just go on and talk about other things for five months. But then eventually the iPhone is in fact released. And they go back to a dark theme and an overall simplification of the tab design. So away from the aqua style tabs that have been up there on apple.com for now, I think three to four years since they had been eliminated from Mac OS X itself. <laughs> and we now have a more brushed metal tab design that is more in line with what you see on the Mac and what you will see on the iPhone. And I said that this is, uh, I thought that, oh wait, these are no longer tabs. They don't look like file folders anymore. Maybe it's more like a segmented control. So I looked it up in the human interface guidelines uh, and clicked around for a bit. And I found out that no, despite the fact that these things do not look like tabs anymore, like they don't from a skeuomorphic point of view, they're still called tab views and that you should be very careful that when you want to have a tab view, you should use a tab view, not a segmented control, despite the fact that they are quote, similar in appearance to a segmented control. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it's this uh, this interface design where it looks like you have one long button with different sections out of it, and you choose the area that you want to go to. Uh, and in that era, the tabs at this point were uh, the Apple logo for home, store, Mac, iPod and iTunes, iPhone, right in the middle, downloads, support, and a search field. So the uh, top-level primary 
navigation bar stayed the same for a couple of years and the overall design more or less stayed the same for a couple of years until the next big product, which was the 2010 announcement of the iPad. Um, and Ed, you made a, a good observation here. Um, even though the apple.com homepage was updated to let the iPad take its place as the main giant hero image, uh, when they made that change, they didn't make the change to give the iPad its own dedicated tab in the top navigation bar. Yeah, it was quickly added, and I'm guessing that maybe corresponded to the time span between the announcement and the pre-order period, something like that. Of course, it eventually did get its own top-level navigation. So at that point, with the iPad released and available for purchase, the top-level tabs were the Apple logo for Home, Store, Mac, iPod, iPhone, iPad, iTunes, with its own separate from iPod tab, support, and the search field. And this has established the pattern that we've had for, wow, I guess, practically a decade now, which is to have, uh, well, there was there were a couple of changes to what we have currently on some very flat tabs, uh, post iOS 7 tabs on apple.com, uh, the logo for home still, and then the store we talked about being phased out as a separate entity. So everything up there uh, is product-oriented, major product classes for Apple. So currently they have Mac, iPad, iPhone, watch, TV, music, and then the sort of servicey stuff, um, not in the like subscription service sense, but right, like support, search, and that shopping bag that follows you around. And so, yeah, that's, that's where we are today. Um, towards the end, we kind of focused here on, on their navigation, but obviously like their, their content changes as, you know, the, the products they have available to sell changes and, uh, modern web design language changes. So now you've got kind of like scroll jacking happening as you go. Oh through. man, I wanted to figure out when the first like egregious scroll jacking that Apple did was. Um, and I wasn't able to pinpoint it. So if anybody knows, I mean, it's, it's like, it's absolutely required. It seems now for every new product page and, and sometimes, I mean, scroll jacking in general is pretty bad, but app, Apple does it the best of anyone. Um, I think, you know, they, one of the things in the iOS design was placing an importance on making scrolling feel right with the right inertia and the right bounce and those sorts of things. So even though they take over the regular scrolling behavior of web pages, they make it still feel like native to Safari, whether that's on the desktop or on iOS. It still feels like you're interacting with a web page just in a different way than you would interact with an article because this is like an interactive product demo, basically. I don't know if this was the first one, but I will never forget the Trashcan Mac Pro product page and its scroll jacking. A, because that page was pretty much unchanged for the entire duration of that product's availability. And B, it was like, I think it was a, a couple seconds from like that initial marketing video where it was kind of like, you know, a, a light source scanning over the top face of the, the Mac Pro that kind of like progressed frame by frame as you scrolled. And I was like, this is unnecessary, especially as it's woefully out of date. <laughs> I think one of the most effective ones that they've done recently is for the iMac Pro, 
where there's at one point about a third of the way down the page, I think, where it reveals the cooling system. And there's the back view of the machine that stays in place. But then as you scroll, it goes to the cutaway version that's showing the airflow animated live. And you can go back and forth and reveal it or not. It's like, um, it's like those cutaway picture books for children that like, but like the best technological implementation of that. So they do some really cool stuff with apple.com now. Yeah. So we wanted to finish on one last little category, not of the evolution of the site, but some of the times that the site is not its normal self. So there have been a number of occasions over the years where you'll go to apple.com and you will not get any of the things that we just talked about uh, because they have decided for a limited time, usually just a single day, to have some sort of takeover of the homepage for various reasons. Um, I started looking into these, and uh, there was a distinct pattern that I noticed, um, and that has led us to separate these into two categories, which are deaths and not deaths. (laughs) But one of the things that Apple likes to do, well, not likes to do, but um, sees fit to do, is uh, to commemorate the deaths of what they see as important people. Um, And there's uh, a bit of a history of this going all the way back to 2001. And the thing that I think ties these together are the the presentation of them and the way that they fit into Apple's sort of broader corporate ethos. So the first of these was in 2001, and it was for the death of George Harrison, member of the Beatles. And uh, they didn't completely take over the homepage. There were still some of those product images below, but a larger-than-average hero image at the top of the page, all in black and white, was an image of him um, with his name and the dates of his life. And um, the thing that it calls to mind are the Think Different campaign. And a number of the people that we'll see were honored in this way are the kind of people that were included in the Think Different campaign. And the style of black and white photography that is used also harkens back to that. Um, The difference is that in these cases, the text does not think different. The text is, um, you know, remember this person's life. One of the interesting things here, though, this being the earliest one, and us talking about some of the things that Apple.com was useful for, well-known for at this time, was Apple.com is where you got the dang QuickTime software, (laughs) both for Mac and Windows. And so unlike some of these other ones where they really just blank out everything else on the page, at the bottom of this little tribute is a, a little notice with a link that says, watch a QuickTime movie about George Harrison on CNN.com. That, that almost made this feel like sort of a news story, which was different than some of the other ones. Um, the next one that I was able to find was four years later in 2005 for Rosa Parks' death, uh, the civil rights icon. Again, the same sort of three-quarters page takeover, and this caused some controversy because people were seeing it as using her image for basically a marketing purpose and not an honest purpose, um, which... I, you know, I, I can see the the debate over that, but on the other hand, I, I see it also in that broader context, like I said, of the 
Think Different campaign. And, you know, some of the people in the Think Different campaign were alive at the time, and some people were not. So um, it just depends on the way that you view it. Uh, it's good that you bring that up because the next one, the next major one, stands in stark contrast to that, and for good reason. When Steve Jobs passed away in 2011, uh, yes, the entire front page, save for the top navigation bar, was just the now iconic black and white photo from his Walter Isaacson biography and uh, his his birth year and death year. Um, there is nothing. There's no footer. There's no like fine print legalese. It's just the top navigation bar. So I guess you can get to wherever you needed to go and then the the one photo. Right. And in this case, this was, you know, in effect, uh, a press release, a piece of news that was critical to the company. Like, of course, they should put it on their website. Uh, and of course, they wanted to do it in, uh, you know, eye-catching, but also respectful way. And uh, another useful thing by actually going to the Internet Archives capture of this is the entire image was a click through to Apple.com slash Steve Jobs, which was another page that, again, just had the top navigation bar and one hero sized area of content with uh, just like a a quick paragraph about Steve and then uh, the invitation to email any memories you had of Steve Jobs to a a special email address remembering Steve at Apple.com. And then I think later some of those may have shown up on this apple.com slash Steve Jobs page and uh, certainly used in like the um, the memorial services they had at the Infinite Loop campus and elsewhere. Yeah, and maybe even later things like the opening of the Steve Jobs Theater, those kind of things. Yes, yeah. A number of other public figures were commemorated in this way in 2013, Nelson Mandela, in 2014, Robin Williams... And in 2016, Muhammad Ali. So again, the the, the think different class of people, um, you know, world leaders, entertainers, sports figures, um, but people who were uh, internationally known icons that they saw fit to, um, you know, even as a company, not let the the news of those people's deaths go unmentioned. Uh, and then one more in 2016 that was. Uh, a person who was close to Apple, who was uh, who was featured on the homepage, and this was Bill Campbell. Not necessarily uh, a name that we talk about much in the history of Apple, but uh, a very important figure. So Campbell uh, started at Apple in 1983 and was their VP of marketing, uh, overlapping with Steve Jobs then. Uh, he then later left and was the CEO of Intuit uh, in the 90s and was greatly successful there as well. And then when Steve Jobs returned to Apple, he wanted Campbell back at Apple. And Campbell served as a board member there from 1997 to 2014 when uh, he resigned or, or retired from the board um, and was, I think, in, in poor health at that mm-hmm. point. Um, and then... Um, two years later, was when he died and was similarly remembered on Apple.com. Not quite the figure of Steve Jobs, but another person who was uh, extremely important to the company. Let's end this episode on a slightly more positive note. (laughs) 
Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we've brought you real down with a whole bunch of funerals essentially here. Uh, let's talk about some fun things that Apple has put, uh, in just as big of a presentation on their homepage to wrap this up. Yeah. I was going to say like this category is, uh, still about things that aren't, um, it's not about deaths, obviously, but it's about things that Apple isn't selling. Well, this first example is, I guess, <laughs> promoting something that Apple is selling, but it was, I think, larger beyond that context. In 2010, when Apple finally secured the rights to distribute the Beatles catalog through the iTunes Music Store, they gave them a homepage takeover for a while and a pretty extensive advertising campaign. I remember billboards all over the Bay Area with the same black and white photo of all four members of the Beatles, which I had also never seen before. It was also like kind of a, a cool photo that maybe they had they had like unearthed or gotten to permission to release uh, along with the recordings. Um, but this black and white photograph was all over, including a prominent takeover placement on Apple.com. I have to imagine that every single piece of that marketing campaign was agreed to in the contract between Apple and Apple uh, that allowed them to to do that. Um, it was not like, oh, yeah, now you have the stuff and you can promote it however you want. No, I'm sure it was like to the T, how many billboards, which photo you're using, <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. And uh, like you just said, like this is... This was a big deal for so many reasons, but I think one of the ones that's particular to their um, to their catalog being released digitally on Apple of all places is yes, they were their record label was Apple Core, and there was a long, long uh, legal proceedings over like Apple can't be a music company, which is how we get to um, some various Easter eggs we've talked about before, and Apple can't be in the business of doing uh, digit or sound recordings or sound hardware, you know, and the fact that it was uh, the these Apple recordings being released and distributed by Apple was a very big deal. So yeah, put all the marketing weight behind it, even if you have to agree upon every bullet point of that plan. One that didn't have uh, really any outside inspiration, just a total internal thing was in 2014, uh, there was takeover of the homepage for the 30th anniversary of the Macintosh's release that had um, its own logo that it was like the number three and the zero was the Apple logo done in like super light uh, Helvetica with rainbow inside of it. And there uh, was, again, you could click through and there was a sort of mini site that's probably still available, I would guess. They tend not to take these things down. I mean, heck, Thoughts on Flash is still at its original URL um, that talked about the uh, the release of the Macintosh and its 30-year history. And then uh, next is what seems to have become an annual tradition of doing a homepage takeover for Martin Luther King on the Martin Luther King holiday in January. This started in 2015 and has happened every year since then, and I think is usually accompanied by a tweet from Tim Cook's Twitter account. Uh, so it's it's maybe it's a little bit self-serving to kind of tie Apple into it. But Ed, again, like you were saying, it also goes with the Think Different campaign and that kind of style of uh, shaping the world and being visionaries and and good people to align with. So it's it's fun that Apple celebrates that every year as well. Yeah, MLK, in fact, was part of the Think Different campaign. So uh, a definite continuation there. Um, but, you know, one of the things that Apple is uh, 
as an American company uh, sees uh, sees fit to do, um, and as part of their general, you know, you don't think of all the time of Apple as having a political stance, um, but they do have certain uh, non-technology things or things that only interface with technology indirectly that they definitely talk about pretty frequently. Um, and among those are things like privacy and how that fits into human rights in general um, and civil rights. So it's uh, it's definitely something that they have decided to uh, to lean on as an annual celebration and part of part of their brand. Yes. All right. Promised you some fun and some weirdness. Last couple ones just happened within the past few months, both this year. I didn't know about either of these because they come and go. And one of them was only available in Canada. Um, so in, what, June of this year, the Toronto Raptors won the NBA championship, the first Canadian team to do so. Uh, it was a big deal. They beat the Warriors, Eddie Q's beloved Warriors. That's right. That's right. And in a classy move, or maybe just trolling Eddie. On Apple.ca, the day after they won the championship, they had a uh, they had a tribute to them that was like an animated explosion of emoji of the T Rex uh, dinosaur uh, representing the raptor. I guess close enough. Uh, a basketball and the Canadian flag just flying all over the place. <laughs> um, and we'll link to a, a write up of that with a screenshot. That one's a lot of fun, not too egregious, not too like visually offensive. This next one, I cannot say the same. <laughs> well, go for it. Also sports related. Um, the United States women's national team won the World Cup also this year, 2019. And uh, Apple.com, being you know a company headquartered in the United States, decided to celebrate that victory as well. Except they didn't do it with cute emoji. They did it with three... Uh, very like hyper stylized memoji. Yes. So there are some soccer ball emoji flying around, but then they have literally red, white, and blue memoji. I guess that was a new feature this year, isn't it? It was. Yeah. Like all the different makeup options. Where you can change different uh, skin colors that are not typical uh, human skin tones. Um, but yeah, there are these three memoji and, uh, and iMessage effect confetti. Um, and, it's uh it's pretty wild. Yeah. It's a far cry from something <laughs> as like culturally and economically important as we're selling Beatles music now. Here's like a very staid black and white photo. This was like a like quick news thing that had virtually no relation to the fact to anything that Apple was doing and it got this extremely uh extremely flashy representation. On on Apple.com, the homepage, not buried anywhere. As unusual as it may have been, I think that's a, a good place to leave it. Um, we've talked about homepage takeovers, top navigation, and uh, early 90s design trends. Apple.com has seen a lot since it came online. Yes, and we will, of course, have lots of Wayback links in our show notes for this episode, which you can find in your podcast player or on our website at simplebeep.com. If you have anything that you have unearthed on the Wayback Machine or screenshots that you've saved from the early 90s that you want to send along to us. I mean, one of the things about going through these Wayback pages is they're like, the way, it's an archive. They're in cold storage and they take a long time to go and retrieve all those individual files and send them back. 
So it's a bit like a scavenger hunt in there. There may be a page that you know, to get to it, you have to like sort of painstakingly go through a whole bunch of captures to find that exact right moment. Um, and you know, you could grow old going through every single one, but maybe you found something that we didn't get a chance to mention, send it over to us. And of course, there will be follow-up in a future episode. If you have more bite-sized feedback or things you just want to tweet at us, we are on Twitter. The show is at simple underscore beep. You can also find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at E. Cormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.